Welcome to Theory of Indivisibility, solutions-focused evolutionary analysis of our social, economic, and political systems delivered to you in short, digestible episodes. I'm your host, Dr. Sunjata. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Theory of Indivisibility. I'm so happy that you've taken time out of your day to listen to the next show. Uh, whether you're doing work around the house or working out or just driving along in your vehicle, I realize that you're setting aside precious time in your life to go on this journey with me and listen to this information and learn and grow uh, with me. And I appreciate that. So let's jump into it. During season one of Theory of Indivisibility, we are exploring the evolutionary origins, current complexities, and how my theory of indivisibility applies to the following social systems, power over, patriarchy, religion, ownership, capitalism, democracy, racism, and education. In the previous episode, we discussed the evolutionary origins of religion. During today's episode, we're gonna analyze and synthesize the current complexities of religion in today's society. The show is available on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you listen to podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new release. And if you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review. It helps attract more listeners to the show. I'm excited to share that I've consolidated all of my independent educator slash anti-oppression and social sustainability activism work under a brand called Grow. Grow has been the home of my work in self-directed education slash unschooling for about four years now, for over four years now, and is also the new home to several initiatives of mine and others, including this podcast. I'm in the process of building the Grow Network with other like-hearted people who want to create and share their gifts towards helping create socially and environmentally sustainable societies around the world. So if you're a writer, podcaster, blogger, artist, innovator, designer, inventor, etc., and your work is rooted in creativity, purpose, collaboration, liberation, sustainability, and unconditional love, check us out at igotogrow.com and email me at igotogrow at gmail.com to learn more. Also email me if you have some of these skills and you'd like to volunteer to help out with these type of initiatives. Next, I want to thank all of my patrons. I really appreciate your support and appreciation for this work. If you're listening to the show and you get value from listening, please consider visiting patreon.com forward slash live indivisible to support the show. dive into analyzing the current complexities of religion and society, I want to introduce you to a systems thinking concept called feedback loops. The team at the website thwink.org, that's T-H-W-I-N-K.org, provides the following insights about systems thinking and feedback loops. Systems thinking is not stepping back to look at the whole, the big picture, or a higher level. 
This helps, but does not lead to the major insights that emerge when the feedback loop structures of the system becomes visible. Systems thinking is the ability to see feedback loop patterns, and when this insight happens, night becomes day. So what is a feedback loop? A feedback loop is a process that is the result of a mutual causal interaction, meaning X affects Y and Y equally affects X. It's a constant loop of an action influencing an effect and an effect influencing an action. Nature contains two types of feedback loops, balancing and reinforcing. Balancing feedback loops are self-correcting. They produce stability. An example of a balancing feedback loop is a thermostat. Suppose you set the target temperature to 68 degrees in a room with a temperature of 60 degrees. The higher the target, the greater the temperature gap. The greater the temperature gap, the more heat that flows into the system. And that increases the temperature in the room. As the temperature in the room goes up, the temperature gap goes down. It keeps going down until the gap is zero, at which point the system has reached the target. Reinforcing feedback loops produce exponential growth, which can lead to instability. An example of a reinforcing loop is population growth. As population goes up, so does births per year. And as that goes up, so does future population. There's a diagram created by the team at the Unschool of Disruptive Design that illustrates these concepts perfectly, and it'll be in the show notes. Reality is made up of circles called feedback loops, but we tend to only see straight lines because we've been taught to be linear, one-dimensional thinkers. This is why systems thinking can be so challenging to grasp for some, for some people. Peter Senge, author of The Fifth Discipline, notes that our language also plays a role in this difficulty. He states that words shape perception and what we speak becomes reality. The English language with its subject-verb-object structure biases us towards a linear worldview. If we want to become systems thinkers, we need a language that honors interrelationships. We need a language made up of circles. To illustrate this, let's discuss an example of a very simple system shared in the fifth discipline. If someone was filling a glass of water and you were asked to describe what you saw, you might say, for example, Rahim is filling a glass of water. A lack of systems thinking produces a perspective based only off of what we can physically see. This gives us a shallow understanding of the way a system truly works. For example, when pouring a glass of water, we, we tend to only think in terms of turning the faucet on until the glass is full and then turning it off. A systems thinking point of view helps us to see that a system's behavior is a result of its feedback loops. In this example, the act of pouring a glass of water can be understood at a much deeper level by drawing a feedback loop diagram. Starting at the top, the faucet position influences the water flow, which influences the current water level. The desired water level minus the current water level equals the perceived gap. As the water level rises, the gap closes, which influences the faucet position, which influences the water flow. This feedback loop process operates continuously until the desired water level is reached. The key to seeing reality systemically is seeing circles of influence 
rather than straight lines. I included a diagram so that you can see what I just explained in the show notes. The key to seeing reality systemically is seeing circles of influence rather than straight lines. This is the first step to breaking out of the reactive mindset that comes inevitably from linear thinking. Every circle tells a story. By tracing the flows of influence, you can see patterns that repeat themselves time after time, making situations better or worse. The feedback loop overturns deeply ingrained ideas such as causality. In everyday English, we say, I am filling the glass of water, without thinking very deeply about the real meaning of the statement. It implies a one-way causality. I am causing the water level to rise. The more complete statement of causality is that my intent to fill a glass of water creates a system that causes water to flow in when the level is low, then shuts the flow of water off when the glass is full. In other words, the structure of the glass causes the behavior. This distinction is important because seeing only individual actions and missing the structure underlying the actions lies at the root of our powerlessness in complex situations. Another idea overturned by the feedback loop perspective is anthropocentrism. I hope I said that right. Anthropocentrism, or which means seeing ourselves at the center of activities. The simple description, I am filling the glass of water, suggests a world of human actors standing at the center of activity operating on an inanimate reality. From the system's perspective, the human actor is part of the feedback process, not standing apart from it. This represents a profound shift in awareness. It allows us to see we are continually both influenced by and influencing our reality. It is the shift in awareness so ardently advocated by ecologists and their cries that we see ourselves as part of nature, not separate from nature. When I think deeply about the feedback loop process and the example of the process of filling a glass of water and how the structure of the actual glass, meaning its size and its shape, influences every other behavior and the steps taken to fill it, I think about what the implications could be for poverty, crime, school, dropouts, homelessness, and other issues that plague society if instead of blaming people as individuals for finding themselves in those situations, we chose to examine the entire process that led to them being in the situation and the structure of the glass cup, a.k.a. the system, that they are making decisions to survive in. I realize that this is a hard concept to accept because it feels like we're absolving people from taking personal responsibility for their choices and actions. However, if you think back to the Slinky example in episode three and, and allow yourself to imagine how if our social, economic, and political systems were designed in a completely different way, then certain choices either wouldn't be made or they wouldn't have the same consequences. I stated this and provided examples in episode three, and I'll state it again. Systemic structures are more influential than individual choices. I can't tell you all how many times I've been into debates, dialogues, discussions with people about very, the various social issues since I've learned systems thinking and how it's totally changed my worldview. And I'll explain something to people in terms of the patterns that I'm seeing, the influence that goes into the various 
results that we continue to see in society. And a lot of people, because again, we're 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 trained growing up to be linear thinking, li- excuse me, linear thinkers. A lot of people just can't wrap their mind around what I'm trying to convey. And it's hard for me to really, I, I do my best to make the connection without going into a whole explanation that I just gave you about feedback loops and helping people, breaking out diagrams for people to see them, et cetera. But when I learned systems thinking, I realized that we literally just have to evolve in our thinking um, as, as humans if we're going to solve our greatest challenges. Because once I learned to see in systems and I learned to see patterns and learned to understand that everything is a system, it just gives me a total different, more nuanced perspective on the various social issues that we encounter day to day. So again, that's why I do this podcast. And I hope that for you, the listener, that this is sparking some interest, that you'll visit the show notes to take a look at some resources, um, the visual of the things I just shared, as well as the various links that I've shared in every episode when I discuss systems thinking. To assist us with analyzing and synthesizing the current complexities of religion, we're going to create a cluster map. Cluster maps are an important systems thinking tool because they help us to see the interconnections, interdependencies, and dynamic complexities of the elements, aka subsystems, that make up a system. To make a cluster map, you draw a large circle and then you write all of the elements that make up whatever system you're exploring. Whatever comes to mind when you think about religion, you write it down. As a call to action, I want to invite you to make your own religion cluster map as well. It will really help you to learn to diagnose and understand the complexities within systems. So pause the podcast and grab a piece of paper and something to write with. You can also do this mentally if you'd like to practice before hearing mine while you're driving or doing chores or whatever you're doing while listening. And if you'd like, you can share it with us at patreon.com forward slash live indivisible or you can share it in our Theory of Indivisibility Discord group. You can find a Discord group by visiting igotogrow.com and clicking on, clicking on Grow Indivisible, which is where you'll find this podcast. And you'll see a link to the Theory of Indivisibility community dialogue. For those of you who've been following for a while, you'll notice that I've changed our group from being a Facebook group to being a Discord group. So let's talk about my cluster map of religion. So my cluster map includes patriarchy, male supremacy, fellowship, morals, culture, heaven and hell, devil, Jesus, monogamy, Ten Commandments, pastors, gospel music, church, Christianity, Bible, fear, divisive, control, colonization, war, Love, hate, hypocrisy, creation story, evolution, spirituality, religious opt-outs. I could have also included every element from the power over and patriarchy cluster maps on the religion cluster map as well and made several connections to illustrate how they're all connected. If you've been following along, I'm sure you've already started to do so mentally. So instead, I just included patriarchy here to serve as a connection point. So when you visit the show notes, you'll be able to see all of the lines that I drew, the connections that I made, the interconnections, the interdependencies, 
And once again, when you look at a cluster map, what you're trying to draw, what you're trying to pull from that is when you draw these lines to connect the various elements, which are also systems to one another, it just really helps to make that visual mental connection to the fact that all of these elements are connected to one another, either directly or indirectly, and which means they're all interdependent on one another. So while, for example, the Bible can be drawn to love, the Bible also can be drawn to fear because of some of the messaging in the Bible. Or while I can draw a line from the Bible to something like, you know, fellowship, I can also draw a line to colonization and how and thinking about how the Bible was used to justify colonization and to think about how. Um, I can draw a line from colonization to war. So therefore, if the Bible was used to justify colonization, then indirectly the Bible was also uh, used to justify war. When I think about how the indigenous natives of this continent uh, were either were forced to accept Christianity or they would be killed, that's just you know an example of some of the um, complexities of all of this. And you know, I can draw a line from from love to spirituality and also draw a line from spirituality to the Bible, because the Bible also teaches so many wonderful things about spirituality and morals. And there's lines to morals, et cetera, from spirituality and from the Bible, um, the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's so many lines. There's so many, um, you know, complexities within these lines. But you have to look at and take them all into consideration when you're looking at the entire system of religion. And I'm talking about the Bible because I grew up Christian. So the first things that come to mind for me is all of my experiences growing up as a Christian. So I'd be interested to see your cluster map as well, the connections you made. Um, and if you'd like to add comments around the reasons why you made those connections, please do. And please share them with us. So I'd like to start with looking at the current complexities of religion by starting with how patriarchy has specifically impacted religion. Sociologists define patriarchy as a social system in which men hold primary power and predominate in roles of political leadership, moral authority, social privilege, and control of property. In episode six, we explore patriarchy in detail, combining all three parts, the evolutionary origins, current complexities, and how my theory of indivisibility applies to it. Religion as we know it today evolved from patriarchy and served to further embed patriarchal norms into human societies. Dr. Mickey Cashton, a sociologist who has spent decades studying violence and oppression, states the following about patriarchy in a Psychology Today publication. Begin quote. The underlying principle of patriarchy, as I understand it, is separation and control. The separation is from self, other life, and nature. The fundamental structures we have created over the past approximate 7,000 years are based on dominance and submission, and the worldview we have inherited justifies them as necessary to overcome both our basic nature and nature, which is seen as separate from us. In the end, patriarchy gives only a few men access to power in society and most men some small access to power in relation to women, 
robbing all men of core aspects of their humanity. This is a raw deal of monumental proportions. I see this as the core source of violence, the physical, emotional, and spiritual brutalization of boys and men. End quote. Many deem religion as being the rule book for upholding the do's and don'ts of patriarchy. Here are a few examples provided by Nishat Amber in an article discussing religion's role in furthering patriarchy. Almost all organized religions propagate the idea of male superiority. They paint women as physically, mentally, emotionally, and sexually inferior to men. The latter get special rights and privileges on account of being quote-unquote naturally superior to their female counterparts. In almost all organized religions, restrictions exist over a woman's choices over her body, sexuality, lifestyle, clothes, and just about everything. Sexuality and reproductive rights is especially the problem is especially the problem area with regard to women. Almost all religions advocate sexual exclusivity for women while exonerating men from the same obligation. The supreme God in all religions is always envisioned as a male. Scriptures are mostly written and interpreted by men who tweak and translate them to suit their own vision of the desirable social order and preferable gender dynamics in the same. End quote. So it wasn't until I started doing this work and really examining uh, oppression in society that I really, for the first time, even began to question, well, why is it that God, when people talk about gods, that is always he? And why is it that, why is that the default? And because I'm an African-American man and I have experienced processing how Historically, people of European descent have been the default in American society or just Western cultures in general because of how history has unfolded. It wasn't that hard for me to wrap my mind around processing the fact that that same the same way there was white supremacy, I could start to see the male supremacy showing up in religion. And, you know, and once I started to understand patriarchy, which wasn't even something I really understood until, you know, or questioned or was even in my frame of reference until with like the last five to 10 years is when I really began to understand just, you know, what male supremacy was. Because again, when you're in a society and these things are the norm, you just kind of go along with the flow. And it's like just a lot of ways that when we speak in our language, we use he as the default when explaining things. Uh, when we give inan- inanimate objects, we call them he. When we see animals, people, for the most part, we'll say we'll designate that animal as being a he. And when we don't know the gender of someone, like, for example, I now because I notice these things, if I'm in the car with someone and someone in another car does something, even if we can't see who's driving, the initial default statement would be, why did he, you know, do that as the driver? Why did he cut me off or why did he, you know, speed up when we didn't even see the gender of the driver? So it's like we live in a society where he is the default. And that's also, of, of course, a part of our religions. So, you know, again, just something to think about, something that I've been made aware of. And it's something that's, you know, it's, it's just hard to ignore the influence of men within religion.
next current complexity that I want to discuss is religious opt-outs. So religious opt-outs are people like myself who grew up in, in religious households and have chosen to opt out of religion once they became of age uh, to make that choice on their own. And it's something that is, you know, there's a lot of articles being written about it these days. It's something that, you know, is very noticeable. It's something that I notice within my peers. Um, you know, we don't go to church with the same commitment that our parents or our grandparents did. And it's, um, you know, it's just something I notice. So I want to share some data on this. The following data is from PRRI, an organization called PRRI, which stands for Public Religion Research Institute. Begin quote. In 1991, only 6% of Americans identified their religious affiliation as none. And that number had not moved much since the early 1970s. Today, one quarter, 25% of Americans claim no formal religious identity, making this group the single largest religious group in the U.S. The reasons Americans leave their childhood religion are varied, but a lack of belief in the teachings of religion was the most commonly cited reason for disaffiliation. Among the reasons Americans identified as important motivations in leaving their childhood religion are they stopped believing in the religion's teachings at 60%, their family was never that religious when they were growing up at 32%, and their experience of negative religious teachings about or treatment of gay and lesbian people, 29%. Fewer than one in five Americans who left their childhood religion point to the clergy sexual abuse scandal at 19%, a traumatic event in their life at 18%, or their congregation becoming too focused on politics at 16% as an important reason for disaffiliating, end quote. So my personal reasons for becoming an opt-out is, as I got older, I would say my religious experience pretty much went like this. As a child, I had to be there, and I was there often. Uh, my mother, my grandmother, um, you know, the people I spent the most time with growing up were extremely religious, and specifically speaking about the Christian uh, religion. And when I got into high school, when I got a little more freedom, I began to opt out and, and not go to church as much as I got older in high school. And when I went on to college, went away to college, um, I stopped going altogether. I still believe, but I began to question things as I got into college. And I had a close friend who was a Muslim, who still is Muslim, and I would ask him a lot of questions, and then I would kind of compare, you know, his belief system and culture to what I understood about Christianity. And once I got out of, got out of college and I began to, um, I eventually met my now ex-wife, but when I met her, in my early 20s, and she and I started dating, and we started moving towards marriage, then we started going back to church, because, you know, that just seemed like the thing to do. When you were settling down, you want to get more serious into your faith, and, you know, go through the, the church counseling, and all those various things. So we did that, and we got involved with this church that we really liked, and we started attending, and, you know, I got more involved again into the church. Things remained that way for the, about the first I'd say about six first six years of our marriage. And after our second child, we stopped going uh, consistently again. 
when we initially moved from Pennsylvania to Georgia, we began to go find a church here and we started to go. And just little by little, we began to kind of pull back for various reasons. Um, but one was in my early 30s, I started to learn about other religions again. And my wife at the time, she became, began to just get frustrated with the hypocrisy she saw in the church. You know, she saw a lot of people uh, just doing human things, you know, uh, saying one thing, um, you know, or behaving a certain way and, and following and believing on Sunday, but then throughout the week, you know, displaying different behaviors. And it just rubbed her the wrong way to the point where she didn't want to be associated with that type of hypocrisy. For me, it was more along the lines of by starting to research other religions, I began to kind of take a 10,000 foot view of religion as a whole and not so much get caught up in just being a Christian, but understanding all religion. And as I understood various religions and how they started, you know, it made me think like, well, how can someone believe that only one is right? And my worldview changed at that point from no longer believing in the whole idea of one religion as being the one and only thing. And I I, I still maintained a belief in God and there being one God. And in my mind, it still was a he and all those things, right, in my early 30s. And but then I stepped away from the church because it just didn't make sense to be like picking a team, if that makes sense, because I was starting to believe more and more and understand things about equity and equality. And, you know, I was seeing how also began to see how religion was rooted in hierarchy. And then I started to see how it was rooted in male privilege and the whole idea of the man as the head of the household. Whereas in my relationship, you know, we had more of a partnership dynamic. Um, Etc. So it's just all these different, again, just inconsistencies and just how it just wasn't working with the way my life was unfolding and the way my beliefs were evolving as well. Um, another thing is, you know, when you think about the from in my mind, I got to a point as I matured into my 30s where I start to really plant my flag in terms of this whole indivisible thinking. I was always kind of conceptualizing the world and, you know, the ideas of unity and equality and various things. And I saw I started to see churches being divisive uh, because, you know, people had the, the view it was like a competition. If someone wasn't your religion, then they weren't they weren't going to be, quote unquote, saved or they were going to go to hell. Um, you know, I remember being at my aunt's funeral last year and someone got up and spoke and said, you know, she's in a better place because because she was a Christian. And that immediately jumped out at me because of the work I do now. And I'm just like, so all the people in the world who aren't a Christian are not going to be in a better place. Like it just it just rubbed me the wrong way because, again, like our world is so divisive. And it's like, man, religion is at the forefront of that with this us versus them type divisive messaging that's just embedded in it. So that was another reason why, you know, I chose to opt out. And by this point. Um, I would say probably about within the last three or three three or four years or so is when I got to the point where I no longer believed that this there was just one God who was a he and all these various things. And to the point where I now don't say that I believe there's a God, I'll say that I don't know because there's no proof. There's no evidence outside of, you know, just having faith. Right. So. I've grown to a point in my evolution of how I understand things and how I see things based on the things I've learned 
you know, within the last couple of years, especially once I started doing research for this podcast and understanding the scientific evidence that's been provided for just evolution, et cetera, it just no longer makes sense for me to believe the teachings of um, of my religion, which was the Bible, um, and just religion in general and all the various things that I just shared. So, and then finally, the, the last thing that really, really made me an opt-out was the intolerance of Christians and religious people in general, the intolerance and the judgment uh, and the fact that people are so judgmental of others. And I didn't want to be a part of that. You know, in one breath, I would hear people say that, you know, Jesus accepted everyone. But then I would see religious people and religious leaders, you know, act so judgmental, especially towards homosexual people. And I felt began to feel really bad because I was one of those people who believed that, you know, homosexuality was a sin. These people were a quote unquote abomination. And again, I started to come out of that and realize that I was having, you know, prejudiced feelings towards another human being. And I was judging them and not taking their word for it, but taking a word of something that was written in the book that was written thousands of years ago versus listening to the person right in front of me, observing my cousin observing my friend or someone I grew up with who may have identified as homosexual, instead of judging them, I wanted to accept them. And it was like I couldn't be religious and accept them. And I still see people to this day who I'm friends with who, who hold on tight to their religious understandings of who people should be instead of accepting people for who they actually are based on what we see. And that's, again, aligned with science. And I'll get there in a second, but it's like evidence. So instead of going by what some man wrote in a book thousands of years ago, I choose to go by evidence and what I can see and what we can see and what can be proven. So all those things played into me being a religious opt-out. So another current complexity within the conversations around religion is the argument for science versus religion, which at the core is really evolution versus creation. Because evolution tells the story of how the universe evolved and all the living things and inanimate objects within the universe evolved over time. And I did not understand that to the detail that I understand it now until I started doing the research for this podcast and I present that research in the first uh, couple of episodes of the, of the podcast. And up until then, I literally believed that, you know, God created the earth. There was this man who created the earth in a matter of seven days and created all the animals and all the plants and all these various things. In a matter of seven days, there was, it was just created. So, that's been an ongoing debate. I know that there's still people who believe that, who don't believe the science. So in an article by Amir Axel titled, Why Science Does Not Disprove God, Amir makes the case that in spite of all the amazing scientific discoveries made in the past approximate 200 years since the various sciences have evolved, none of them really disprove that there is a creator. He points out the following. Science won major victories against entrenched religious dogma throughout the 19th century. In the 1800s, discoveries of Neanderthal remains in Belgium, Gibraltar, and Germany 
in Germany showed that humans were not the only hominids to occupy Earth. And fossils and remains of now extinct animals and plants further demonstrated that flora and fauna evolve, live for millennia, and then sometimes die off, ceding their place on the planet to better adapted species. These discoveries lent strong support to the then emerging theory of evolution published by Charles Darwin in 1859. And in 1851, Leon Foucault, a self-trained French physicist, proved definitively that Earth rotates rather than staying in place as the sun revolved around it, using a special pendulum whose circular motion revealed the planet's rotation. Geological discoveries made over the same century devastated the young Earth hypothesis. We now know that Earth is billions, not thousands, of years old, as some theologians had calculated based on counting generations back to the biblical Adam. All of these discoveries defeated literal interpretations of scripture. End quote. In addition to discussing even more wonderful scientific findings about the evolution of our universe, he goes on to state, begin quote, The incredible fine-tuning of the universe presents the most powerful argument for the existence of an eminent creative entity we may well call God. Lacking convincing scientific evidence to the contrary, such a power may be necessary to force all the parameters we need for our existence, cosmological, physical, chemical, biological, and cognitive, to be what they are. End quote. So, I found that article interesting, and the reason why is because Amir, he acknowledges all the various scientific evidence that has debunked what's found in scripture. And that's one of the things I've always thought as well as I began to, you know, gain deeper understanding. You know, it's like science as a field is fairly new. It's only approximately 200, 200 years old. And when I say science, you know, there, obviously there's a lot of sub threads to that, you know, a lot of different um, areas in science, but it's still fairly new, only like about 200, 200 years old. The Bible is about two, approximately 2,000 years old. So the Bible was written long before science was able to make the discoveries that it's made within the last 200 years. So for me, I always wonder, like, how believers in the Bible, uh, how they process that. Like, how do they rationalize or how do they come to terms with the fact that the information that is in that Bible, which is very stagnant, is it's literally the same when we live in an evolving world where things change all the time, like how can they like hold their beliefs into something that's that old? And I don't know, it's just a thought. So the other, the interesting thing, thing about this article though, is that, you know, he sees to the fact that all these scientific discoveries have disproved many of the explanations about how our earth formed, et cetera, that are found in the Bible. But then he also says, but there still is no scientific evidence that God does or doesn't exist. So with that being said, he believes that, you know, all these wonderful things that nature does, there still could be, you know, a God figure that's at the helm. Now, understand there's a difference between a God and the conversation. He never mentioned a specific religion. He just mentioned God. Right. So we're, we're kind of leveling out of um, leveling, leveling up from specific religions within the context of this conversation in this article. And 
you know, for me, it just lends back to, you know, what I say is that, you know, I won't argue with anyone when people ask me, do I believe in a God? I'll just say, I don't know if there's a God. But what I do think that I know is that there's never been any evidence. And I definitely don't believe that if there is this omnipotent force that is, you know, at the helm of creating these things, I don't believe that it's a man. So that's just, you know, just based on everything that I've already shared. So I personally agree that both science and religion have played an important role in helping to understand the world around us and our place in it. However, I grieve when I think about all the lives that were taken, the cultures erased, and the dehumanization of so many people all justified in the name of religion. So personally, I think that religion needs an overhaul. An overhaul that includes an audit to identify and remove the oppressive elements and beliefs that are rooted in power over and patriarchy. So what would be left behind if we remove power over and patriarchy from religion? Many people have already provided solutions to this question and we'll explore how next time on Theory of Indivisibility. Theory of Indivisibility is written and produced by me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform and share it with friends on social media. It really, really, really helps. It takes 20 to 30 hours of research, writing, producing, and editing to complete each show. So if you like what you hear, you can show your support in helping to make this show more sustainable by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. That is also where you'll find show notes and resources for each episode. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, I love y'all. Peace. Visionary mind frame got me open in this. I pause for a second, listen to the words that I spit. So can you feel it? Lose focus and you start to see the vibration. Hitting every nation, check your foundation. A matter of energy. Got me circling for the world around me. Stand strong, holding the position I belong. Finish clearing the past and then you move on. To a new way to go, you're engaging the flow, the critical mass. Got a brother running so fast, but will I slow down? The wheels and the bus go round and round. Sitting thinking how I'm living, what the long, but now I'm coming to a point where I'm bridging the gap. I wreck it, living with the interpersonal ethic emerging to another level with my culture open your mind there's no time open your mind in this new vision no time open your mind in this new vision no time open your mind in this new vision no time open your mind in this theme song new vision is performed by Achilles the cosmonaut find more from Achilles the cosmonaut on your favorite music streaming app.